Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing our series um, on the Ten Commandments, a gospel perspective, a gospel perspective. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 is our text this morning, at least part of it. I want to start from the beginning. And now hear the word of the living God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love, that's covenantal love, to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let me begin just a couple of moments again, stressing the the importance of understanding, reading, studying the law of God, the Ten Commandments in particular, and keeping it in its historical, covenantal, and redemptive context. Very important. And I boiled it down. I spent a little time last week. I'm not going to do it again this week. Just a few minutes. To two things. If we can remember these two things, uh, I think we would do well in keeping the law in its historical, covenantal, redemptive context. And those two things are revelation and relationship. What I mean by revelation is that God's moral laws are a reflection of an unveiling, a revelation of his holy and good attributes. The law reflects the lawgiver. God is absolutely pure, holy, and just, and righteous, and therefore his moral law is pure, holy, and righteous because it is a reflection of his character and his will. And therefore, as a reflection of who he is, it's a reflection of who we are. As we look at the law, we see our sinfulness, our unholiness against God's perfect righteous standard and therefore the law also serves as Paul writes in Galatians a schoolmaster a teacher to drive us to Christ as we look at the perfect law it should drive us to despair so that we seek shelter from God's wrath in Christ righteousness in Christ atonement in fact Matthew 5 if you read the uh, sermon on the mount and you walk away going I can do that you've read it wrong But now that Christ's righteousness, his perfect likeness, has been imputed to me by faith, I've been forgiven of my sins, I now can obey and serve God in perfect freedom, not in any fear of terror or judgment or curse of violating the law, because Christ bore that for me, took that punishment on the cross. Now I can delight in the law's precepts. The law reveals God. The law reveals our need for Christ. That's revelation. Relationship. The moral law was given to the people of God after their redemption, after their deliverance, and after their salvation. The obligations and expectations that God had given to Israel, given to us in his moral law, were given to a people who were already saved, already redeemed, already delivered. 
And the same is true for us today. We obey the moral law of God. We follow his will for our life, not as an attempt to win God's admiration to gain his love or approval or somehow put him in our debt. Our obedience, our actions are a grateful, joyful response to his love toward us. The gospel declares that by faith in Christ alone, we have been justified, forgiven of our sins, and made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. And now we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God's law. It becomes now a guide for us to live, and it tells us what love looks like. Remember, remember, remember the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. God said in the new covenant, which is the covenant that Christ came and gave his blood for, I will put my law, God says, within them, in their hearts. I will write it on the hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. So in the gospel, the heart, the inner man, has been changed by the renewal and regenerating work of the gospel. It changed our disposition. It changes our relationship to the commands of God. That's why John the Apostle wrote in 1 John 5, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We show him that we love him by obeying his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm going to say this again, and I promise you this will be the last time, maybe. But we're not under the law. Galatians tells us, trying to win the approval of God, the acceptance, the forgiveness of God through our obedience, through our moral performances. We're not under the law. We're not over the law, disregarding it. We don't care what God thinks or says is right and wrong. The moral law becomes our path and our guide as long as we know it cannot save us and it will not condemn us. We have that freedom to serve God radically. We talk about the law of Christ in the New Testament, which is the law of love. And Paul makes it clear Jesus will do it in Matthew 5. We'll get to that in a few weeks by obeying the commands of God. So we turn to the second command, which we'll look at today. Let's remember the first one. The first one focuses on who God is as we worship <coughs> the one true and living God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, we find the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. That's foundational. It's foundational to all the rest because there's one God, one true creator, one sovereign over us, and the only one in the universe that has divine rights over us. He loves us, and he has given us his perfect will for our lives. God's people now in the first command are commanded to choose the Lord as God and him alone and forsake all others, right? Just like a husband does with his wife, pledging ourselves to him totally and completely. There could be no and in our relationship. We love him, we serve him alone, he's our single devotion, our primary love, our greatest treasure, and I said last week, that looks like, what that looks like is that everything in our life is now subservient, subservient to him, all right? So we can't worship God rightly if we're worshiping something else. The first commandment tells us that the only true God is worthy of our one true worship, we said that last week. It has to do with who we worship. The second command has to do with how we worship. Okay, first command, who we worship. The second commandment is, how are we to worship this one true God? Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, I have it up there after the prologue. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in the heaven, the earth, under the water. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
There are times in the Old Testament, if you read your Old Testament, times in Kings and other places, where the Israelites tried to worship God in the wrong way. Many of them. I looked up a bunch of them this week, but I only got time for one of them. I just want to share with you because it's contextually accurate. While the law, this, this command, was given to the people of God, while it was fresh in their minds, right after they received the Ten Commandments, which is, includes number two, Moses goes back up to the mountain to receive greater instructions from God, and we read in chapter 32 of Exodus this. The Lord said to Moses, excuse me, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, his brother, the priest, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold and were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. Interesting. And made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Listen to this. Tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord, Yahweh, covenant name. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, if you read the story, you know that didn't sit well with God, right? God's not happy. Moses is not happy. But notice Aaron didn't set up these multiple gods that they were used to from Egypt. He set up one God. They wanted to see Yahweh. And he set up an image of the one true God and said, here's the gods that delivered you out of Egypt. They were, they were tired of waiting for Moses, like, where is this guy? And they wanted to summon up this, this created thing to worship, something that they could control, they could move, they could, they could bring it about, they could, they could worship it when and whenever they pleased. Also in this text, notice that Aaron, who just left Egypt as well, doesn't call the golden calf by its, um, by any foreign uh, Egyptian name of the false gods of Egypt. He refers it to the Lord using the covenant name of the one true God. By doing this, he could say, well, you know what? We're calling upon the right God. We called upon Yahweh, our covenant maker. But they still weren't worshiping the right God the right way. The sin is just as great. They presented this graven image as a representation and they violated the very second commandment. Who we worship and how we worship are both vitally important. Who we worship and how we worship are both vitally important. It's not enough to say we're worshiping the right God. We need to worship the right God in the right way. Otherwise, you can have Jesus as your God and worship like pagans. Worship and commit idolatry and worship and still be in slavery to sin. So it's, it's having the right God, worshiping the God the right way, the right God in the right way. And the problem that we face is that our, our hearts 
are sometimes bent towards, especially those who have not had a heart regenerated, of worshiping false gods, seeking new ways to worship, even when God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. So that's the basis for the first, the second commandment. So three things we'll look at as we go through this together. Number one, our God, the God, the, the triune God of Scripture, He's the only functional Savior. We're going to talk about what actual idolatry is. Secondly, he's the only forever mediator. And finally, the only flawless image bearer. Okay? Those are the three outlines or three headings. Now, the only functional Savior. Again, remember the prologue. Chapter 20, verse 1. God introduces the commands by reminding them in verse 1 that I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the Lord who brought you out of the house of slavery. And therefore, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or, or any likeness in heaven and earth or in the water. Now, I mentioned this last week. I want to say it again. Slavery, we learn in Exodus, is not just physical slavery. Okay? It's not just physical slavery. And in fact, I would say, and I want to be careful here because there's a lot of things going on in our culture, but I want to be biblical here. I'm going to say that physical slavery is not even primary or paramount. Moses told Pharaoh to set God's people free so that they can serve, worship, and sacrifice to God. God's delivering them from this misery of physical slavery speaks and announces a very real spiritual reality. We need to see this this morning. Exodus shows us that slavery is ultimately the worship of things that become to us more important, more sensual, we treasure things more than we treasure and worship and keep God at the center of our lives. We like to talk about America, the land of the free, but are we really free? There are many freedoms we enjoy, for sure. And we are thankful. I know I am, and I know many of you, in fact, all of you, I will say, are thankful for the men and women who have given their life for our freedoms. And many men and women who serve our nation, who have served and continue to serve our nation for the freedom that we have. Praise God. Biblically speaking, though, we are really, all of us, all around the world, are in the land of the slaves. The Apostle Peter makes it clear. He says, anything that overcomes you, that overtakes you, and that rules over you, it's like your Pharaoh who becomes your master and enslaves you. Jesus Christ himself said, those who sin are a slave to sin. All of us live, I mentioned this before, I want you to think this through with me. We live for something. We are sinking, seeking, we are clinging to something for worth, for value, for meaning, for security. And we're enslaved by those things that we place in our life, that we run to, that are more central and more significant and more, more uh, central to our, 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 our love and devotion and worship to God. And things, whether it's carved or other things that we put in the place where God alone needs to be and ought to be, wants to be and should be, is what they call idolatry is what we're talking about. So many of us think of primitive people, when we think of idolatry, we think of uh, uh, statues, we think of relics, we think of all these things, uh, man-made stuff, but those are not the only kinds of idols, not just primitive carved things. Today, we are no less prone in 2020 to idolatry than they were in those days. We have no fewer opportunities as they did 
It's just that our temptation and our idolatries come in different forms and packages. I want you to see this this morning. It's important. The theme of Exodus is that sin enslaves us, yet God sets us free. Sin enslaves, God sets us free, and our idols, we'll talk a little bit more in a minute, in a minute our idols lie to us and promise freedom. But that freedom only God can give us. As hard it is to deal with physical slavery, I'm not, we're not preaching for that. We're simply saying, in reality, we're all slaves to sin, and that is the greatest and most important question of our lives. Who will set us free? Jerry Bridges. Sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They preoccupy our minds and consume our time and our resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. Martin Luther used to say, you know, if you keep the first two commandments, you won't break the third through the tenth. Because the third through the tenth commandment is really a breaking of the first two, to have no other gods, to make no other gods. Why do we commit adultery and we steal and we lie? A lot of those things, we'll look at each one of them on how it's a functional savior. We, we lie to others because we want to look good. Pleasing others become our functional savior. And we do this by creating an idol, some functional savior, something we look at, to, uh, something we look at in, in the place of God to find love, to, to find acceptance, to find our rest, to find our contentment, to find our security, our sense of importance, our identity, and things other than God. Romans 1 tells us that idolatry is when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what does an idol look like in our day? I'll ask the question. Don't answer it. Think about it. Talk about it in your community groups. What are you looking for in order to justify yourself? Moral goodness, approvement of others, Money, power, relationship, whatever it is, a counterfeit God. And, and, and to make a change in your life, to have victory in your life, you must identify it, tear it down, rip it from the altar, reorient your life around the real God. His name is Jesus. False gods look to take your life. The real, true, and living God gave his life for you. See the difference. There are many functional saviors. Let me just share a few with you. Just in case you're thinking, I don't have any functional saviors. Okay, let's see. Money, wealth, health can be functional saviors. I have lots of money. My faith is working. God loves me. And now your functional savior helps you feel good about yourself. If you believe wealth is a bad thing, we should be poor. Your poverty and your functional savior is your poverty. You're the real spiritual one. Family, marriage, children can be functional saviors. Women could take good things, and I'll beat up on the guys in a minute. The women could take good things like wanting to be a mom 
And it becomes for her a God thing. She exalts her desire. A baby becomes a savior. And as difficult as it is for those who cannot have children, for those who want them and have them, they come their God, they are freed from what? Motherless torture, right? And now they've gone into the kingdom of motherhood. I mean, we know children are a blessing of the Lord. But they can be idols. Idols are often good things that turn into God things then become bad things. A man, a dad who longs for a wife, it's a good thing. He who finds a wife finds what is good, Proverbs says. But when you idolize marriage, when you idolize husbandry, when you idolize your bride, she becomes an idol. You have to be careful. And I can go on and on if you like. Ask yourself, what am I running to? What do I run to in order to escape? Dot, dot, dot. What do I run to in the things that I am stressed out about? Dot, dot, dot. We may be running to functional saviors. It makes you happy. It comforts you. It brings you joy. It's an act of worship. God told his people, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's reminding them that he is the one who delivered them. His redeeming salvific work. And he's saying to them, I am the only one who is all-powerful, all-loving. I am the only true functional savior who really saved you, who loves you. Why would you worship and trust other so-called gods? So family, listen. Jesus in the gospel, the truth of the gospel, must be more precious, must be more beautiful, must be more precious to your heart, to your soul, more attractive to your heart than the things of this world. Pressing in the gospel to your heart is continually asking yourself what is operating in the place of the gospel. What functional, sa- what, what functional savior has taken the place of the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the worth of Christ? The only functional savior. Second, the only forever mediator. Taking something, as we know in this commandment, to represent God or worship God is carrying it with you, carrying it around as a statue, is, 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 is the heart of this commandment. But we can also violate this commandment when we think we can manage God if we just do the right practices, right? Or we think we could be a benefactor of God, that he is now uh, indebted to us if we just pray the right prayer. Anytime we see something in order to see God, or we make something in order to see God, or or we see something that stands in for God, we commit idolatry. We violate this command. And one of the things I thought through this, one of the things that can morph into an idol and violate this command is when we take something that would normally help us to, to reflect, to ponder upon the things of God, and we take it, and it becomes for us a functional savior as some way that this thing mediates mediates between us and God. Scripture calls that an idol. Sometimes it's called the pastor idol, right? When I need to talk to the pastor before I talk to Jesus and, and run to his word, right? He's closer to God. I'm not. I promise you. My wife's laughing. I'll tell you everything. Sometimes it's the idol of the music pastor. One thing you'll never hear Pastor Ricky ever say 
as he opens up on Sunday morning is this. Let's stand and sing, and it's my great pleasure to usher you into the presence of God. You'll hear that, not from him. Because Jesus does that, right? Now, it's okay to say, look, I love to sing. Because I love Jesus. I love to hear the people of God sing. We have two services. My favorite thing in two services, I get to sing twice. I, I love it. One of the things about having outdoor services, well, that was great. I was appropriate and wonderful. You couldn't really hear people sing, right? You're outside. I love to hear that. The scripture says God inhabits the praise of his people. But God's presence does not come through music. The music may awaken my emotion, awaken my affection toward, and my heart toward God, but I know that I'm close to God. Why? Because of Jesus. Not because of the music. The church is not a mediator. The pastor is not a mediator. But idols will lie and present themselves as functional saviors. They will lie until you can get closer to God. Now, when we talk about this, graven images, we, we want to recognize that God is a creative God, and no doubt, He's a creative God, and part of worshiping him, there are things that are creative. But we have to be careful. It doesn't lead us into idolatry. We need to guard our hearts. God commanded the temple to be built. He said there will be no physical representations of him. But he uses lots of colors and shapes and images from the natural world, but there was no image of God himself. The second commandment does not intend to forbid art, creativity, paintings, or any aesthetic consideration. In fact, look at the Ark of the Covenant. It has what? Two golden cherubims. God gave his spirit. If you read the Old Testament and the work of the tabernacle, you'll see God gave his spirit and encouraged, kind of equipped people, I should say, to do creative things. God is not against beauty. But God is against is infusing any object with spiritual ability as if man-made objects can bring us closer to God, can represent God, establish his communion with God. That is a violation of this commandment. The Old Testament is full of examples of people using man-made artifacts. We read about the golden calf. They weren't worshiping Baal. They were worshiping God in the wrong way. Sometimes, if you remember, um, I thought about this in my study. I remember when we were in First and Second Samuel, uh, the people of Israel took the ark. You remember that was more like a rabbit's foot, like a good luck charm. They, they said, let's bring the ark. We could take the ark. And, and they would try to manipulate God into giving them the victory, harnessing this power through the ark. That's not biblical Christianity. That's paganism. Anytime we focus on religious relic or ritual rather than God, we are substituting ritual for relationship and committing adultery, uh, idolatry and adultery in a way. There are people that you meet that are relying upon like crosses, necklaces, church building, beads, pictures of Jesus, statues to help them instead of simply trusting God. Now, there are symbols. I'm wearing one. We have symbols of, the, of, of a lamb, symbols of a dove that the Bible said the Spirit came down. They abound. But there must be a deal. There must be, there must be restraint. We have to be careful concerning actual depictions of Christ himself and absolutely none of the Father. Now, it doesn't mean I want everyone to go home. As soon as you get home, dig out your Christmas ornaments and trash and burn your nativity sets. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean we need to be careful by using pictures or icons to focus us in prayer. Heaven forbid we're kissing and bowing down and worshiping them. That is strictly forbidden. 
Imagine the Israelites saying that the golden calf was not for worship. It was just an object of, of, of what they call veneration, respect. If we bow to an image, if we get closer to God, it is a violation. Now, I think it's very important that we also mention, um, and this is, this is, maybe you never heard of this before, maybe you have. I think it's important that we have to, we need to be careful against mental images of God as well. Some people using this, you know, picture God running to you, close your arms and God's arms wrapped around you. You want to be careful. Uh, we can compare God's love to a warm embrace or a father re- you know, running to meet his prodigal son, but we ought to be very careful that we are not making images of the invisible God in our mind. Westminster Catechism, larger catechism. The second commandment forbids the making any representation of God or all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, end quote. Jesus taught John 4, right? God is eternal, but is the spirit. Doesn't possess material, physical body. And we look at the world, we say, God, you care about creation, you care about forms, you care about beauty, shapes, and functions, and colors. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So the obvious violation, the obvious violation is taking something and making it, creating it in such a way It's drawing us away from the living God. It's bowing to it and worshiping. We get that. That's obvious. What is less obvious when we take something creative and act in such a way that it functions to us as a mediator, somehow bringing us into God's presence. That's where I think we need to be more careful. 1 Timothy 2, 5, very clear. For there is one God, not three, not five, not anyone you think he may get you somehow to salvation. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and sinful man and that is the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who what? Gave himself as a ransom for all. What tends to happen is these idols lie and try to convince us that something else can mediate. Something else can reconcile. Something else can drive us closer to God rather than Jesus himself. Now, in the Old Testament, we studied First and Second Samuel, there was a lot of mediation going on. M- Moses was a mediator. There was priests, there was prophets, there were kings that mediated, not for worship, but stood in the gap between sinful man and a holy God. They had to dress appropriately, they had to wash, all those things. But in the New Testament, the true and final perfect prophet, priest, and king mediator to come, his name is Jesus He's the only mediator, he's the only point of contact between God and humanity. Because God is holy, and people, we are sinful, there needs to be an intercessor, and his name is Jesus. He's the only one that could draw us into and bring us into the presence of God. Let let me just say one more thing, and that's about praying. I, I think it fits this commandment, praying to saints. During the Reformation, there were countless shrines dedicated to saints. All kinds of all kinds of stuff going on. They had, they had a piece of Mary's garments. They had a piece of hair. They said from John, the the, uh, the apostle, wood from the cross. All these relics uh, were were meant to be what they called, as I mentioned earlier, venerated, kind of respected. But they became objects of worship. And in the Reformation as well, as things began to really get get uh, heated up, there was that big argument with with prayer. Um, and, and if you know anything about the history of the Reformation, uh, people said you need to pray, uh, but God is, you know, way too holy for you. Jesus is not going to let you go. You sin too much. Um, so let's go to his mom. His mom kind of softens 
Jesus and softening up. And the other, the other uh, saints are those that you can go to that can, that can go before you and kind of talk on your behalf. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. There is one mediator, and his name is Jesus. If there's anything we learn from, from the book of Hebrews, one of the main points is the eternal mediatory role of our great high priest, Jesus, Hebrews chapter 10. Because he's our high priest, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The holy place, the very presence of God. By the new and living way that he, Jesus, opened up for us through the curtain that was through his flesh. Through his death on the cross, he opened that curtain. And now we have a great high priest over the house of God. Hebrews says, let us draw near then. Let let us enter into the presence of Almighty God with true hearts and full assurance of faith. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Very clear. Jesus alone mediates the blessings of redemption. He alone forgives. He alone justifies. He alone is our advocate. He alone is our forever mediator. The only functional savior, the only forever mediator, and finally, the only flawless image bearer. Now, when we consider the command here in the second command, not to make yourself a carved image or any likeness, anything that is in the heavens, earth, and on the water, it cannot mean that there has never been an image of God on the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man how? In our image, after our likeness. Trinity, the triunity of God. Our image, our likeness. And let them have, that's human beings, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, livestock, the earth, over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, there's lots of debate on exactly what that means. But one thing, there's a few things we can know for absolute assurance because of the scripture. Number one, because we are all bear God's image, every single human being, born and unborn, has dignity and value and worth simply because they have been created by the Creator. Whether they're smart, not smart, (laughs) whether they're pretty, not pretty, they have value, dignity, and worth created by God in His image and likeness, every single human being, period. It also means being created in the image and likeness of God that we can relate to God. We can love Him, we can worship Him, we can obey Him. God's a personal being, He's not a force. Self-awareness, self-consciousness, we can, we can relate to God. Now, when he says image and likeness, he's not saying we're exact replicas, but there's a likeness. And in this likeness, we read in, in, in Genesis 1 that we are to have a dominion. We are to be representatives of this God to the world. We are to reflect his love. We are to reflect his glory to the world. I've given you dominion. To be made in God's image is to be created to represent God. We don't need to to create images of God because he's already created them. Not for worship, but for reflection, for representatives of the world. 
we're divinely chosen statues, say, meant to show what God is like, created in his image and in his likeness. Idolatry, therefore, diminishes God and diminishes his image bearers. Therefore, mistreating people, any person, particularly murdering of the unborn, but by, by treating and mistreating people and by idolatry really is and comes from the same root. But Adam and Eve sinned. We knew that. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And though, and though, and though we as humans still bear his image, we're marred by sin, obscured by sin. If sin had not come, we would be able to look at each other and see the image and likeness of our creator, and that would, in turn, bring us to the place of worshiping God. Not each other, but worshiping God. As he's the reflection, we are his reflection and representatives of him in the world. The reason for prohibiting graven image of God is that the right to create such images goes only and exclusively for God alone. Whatever image man might create will always fall short. I mean, just think of a golden calf. That's, that's our creativity. God alone has exclusive right to create in his own image. God alone. But now watch this. Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Greek word for image, icon. Jesus is the exact icon, a physical representative of the invisible, unrepresentable God. Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. What we see in Christ is the image of God, which was was, was made in creation, Genesis 1, marred at the fall with their sin, but now has been perfectly restored and completed in Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who is the perfect exact representation of God. Therefore, Christ has uniquely fulfilled this commandment. He showed forth the Father. Jesus said to his disciples concerning their desire to see God the Father, it was actually Philip who said, show us the Father, Show us the Father, and, and that is enough. And what did Jesus say? John 14, 9. I've been with you so long, and you still do not know me? I said, show me the Father. Philip, you, you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So God, who is spirit, is revealed perfectly in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to look upon Christ, to look upon his face, is to see the one who is unseen, who could not be seen at Sinai. Jesus did the seemingly impossible thing. Uh, uh, he allowed human beings to see the God who they and we are not to see. That's the miracle. That, that's the miracle. That's the mystery. That's, that's the majesty of the incarnation. We don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the ultimate one. His name is Christ. He is the invisible. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the second Adam. He is the perfect humanity, the ideal image and the result and as this result, the image to which we, as children, redeemed, will one day be fully restored. He was perfect humanity. The ideal image, and we too will be restored. That's the promise. We shall be like him. 
And so Christ in his perfect humanity as, as the perfect image bearer of God fulfilled the creation mandate that, was, that, that Adam failed. He, he in his perfect humanity as the perfect image bearer of God, he alone represented God flawlessly. He alone reflected God the Father's glory blamelessly through his perfect life and his work of redemption on the cross. The image of God is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We must never carve an image of God because Jesus Christ has already taken that role. Only Christ could do what no man image can do. Namely, reflect flawlessly the image of God. The incarnate Christ is not man's attempt the incarnation is not man's attempt, as we see in his, bro- in, his, in his commandment. It's not man's attempt to create or to carve an image of the invisible God. Christ is the gift. Christ is the gracious and precious gift of an anointed image of which God gave us and we are commanded to worship. Again, we need to be careful, even with pictures of Jesus. We don't know what he looked like. The scriptures doesn't say. There's a little bit here and there, but the scripture doesn't give us this really you know, understanding of what Jesus looked like. If you're old like me, you remember the movies. Blonde hair, blue eyes, got an English accent, British maybe. I, I think it's okay to have paintings. We look at Rembrandt, Michelangelo, depicting something of Jesus. We have storybooks, children's books, films. As long as we don't fall into the trap of presenting an image as means, as a way... To, to mediate your relationship with God and, and drawing us away from the worship of the real, true Jesus. Those who worship our triune Lord through the use of images violate the second commandment. We must look to Christ, how? To see him clearly, how? Through the scripture. We gaze into the law. We not only see the reflection of God's being and attributes, but we, we look and we view and we see the perfect righteousness of Christ. Christ's presence in the law is especially evident in the second commandment as he fulfills those, that commandment. Now, let me just hit this last point and we'll close. God specifically, there's a lot of reasons to obey this command, but here's one for us, verse five. Don't bow down to them, don't serve them. I'm the Lord, I'm a jealous God. God's a jealous God, not the creepy jealousy. You know what I mean? And not that, not that kind of stalker jealousy He's a jealous God. He guards, he protects, and he loves that which is rightfully his. Like a love between a husband and a wife. Right? And make, if he sees his wife with another man, rightfully so, he should be righteously jealous. God feels that way about his people. God, uh, one commentator wrote this. I, I thought it was good. Godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the object of his love, like a mother's jealousy, or like a mother's jealous protection of her children, and a father's jealous guarding of his home, end quote. And look at the consequences. God will visit the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We, in our sin, has lasting effects. Children imitate their parents. Sin tends to run generational. This doesn't deny individual responsibility. Ezekiel tells us the soul's sins will die. The guilt will not pass on. 
But here we're talking about this principle of covenant solidarity, holding people responsible for the conducts of their family. If it's Israel, the head of the family, the head of your home, the husbands, you take responsibility as well, and what you do implicates those in your family. That's just the way it is. The nation failed, the generations would fail. But notice what it says here. It doesn't say to those, it doesn't say to the fourth generation of those who love me, right? So I'm going to visit the the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who love me. It says, no, to those who hate me. So the generations, as they're continuing on, there are those who hate them, those who hate them, those who hate them, those who hate them. Rightfully judged. But look at what it says. Look at the blessing. The next one, then that verse six. But showing steadfast love to thousands, that's generations, of those who love me and keep my commandment. The promise is way more powerful, may, way more beautiful, may more glorious than the visiting of the iniquity. And, and ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, moms and dads, that's a blessing to you today. God can change your direction. God can change your family's trajectory to serve, to love, to worship God. Keep your eyes upon him. God's blessing triumphs over curse for thousands of generations. In other words, forever and ever. So let me close with this. The second commandment, as with all the law, directs us to Christ. It warns us about sin. It gives us not only who God is, but how we ought to worship. And it should drive us to Christ to his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection as a fulfillment of the commandments. It points us to Christ, reminding us that we might never make an image of God because God has revealed his perfect, flawless, beautiful perfection in the image of Christ. It points to Christ. Rather than making images of God, we see that in the gospel, we are also being remade. Into God's image. 2 Corinthians 3. But we all with open, beho- with open face behold. As in a glass the glory of the Lord. Are, are changed into the same image. From glory to glory. Even by the spirit of the Lord. We don't make images of God. For he's making images of himself in us. As the gospel is transforming us. Into the image of Christ. When we read the second commandment. We should not see it as merely a prohibition. For it's also a reminder of Christ our recreation in his image, and therefore we are to look to Christ, the only true image bearer of God, and rejoice in our redemption. The only flawless image bearer is Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we want to be a people who have no functional saviors, but worship you, the one and true and living Savior, who sets us free no matter what bondage we may be in, no matter what this world may have, no matter what comes our way, we are free in Christ. And therefore our sins are forgiven and we will be ultimately and completely in your presence forever and ever. And God, we pray that we will not look to other things as our mediator, that we will come boldly but respectfully and humbly before your throne, because Jesus Christ has made the way. He is our forever mediator. And God, we thank you for Jesus, who lived that perfect life that we could not live, died that atoning death in our place, taking our punishment, our sin, 
wrath we deserve upon himself, rising from the dead, and now calling everyone everywhere to repent of sin, to believe in him. So as we sing this song, as that all we have is Christ, that's all we need. And let us sing, not just words in the air, but worshiping you in spirit and in truth, our one true and living mediator, savior, flawless image bearer.